This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. Hey, go ahead and grab a Bible and open to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we are wrapping up our series, Find Your People, and this idea of community. And uh, what I want to start with is there's a book written by uh, Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, called The Great Divorce. Some of you guys maybe have read it. But it's basically, it's this metaphor for the afterlife. It gives us this picture of heaven and hell. But it takes place in two places. There's Greytown. And then there's the real country. And where it starts is in Greytown, and, and we have this person visiting Greytown, and they're, 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 ex, they're, it, they're trying to get a lay of the land, and so they're being toured through Greytown. And they notice there's all these empty houses and neighborhoods that only have one or two lights on. And so he's like, I, you know, I know there's a lot of people here, but why are there all these empty houses? And he's like, oh, well, in Greytown, you get whatever your heart desires. And so as you're going through Greytown, you first arrive and you have neighbors. But eventually, you're going to have some kind of conflict with these neighbors. And so all you have to do is imagine a house further down the street, and it's yours, and you move into it. But eventually, uh, even a distant neighbor there, you start to have conflict with and a disagreement. And so as you, as you move in, you move further and further away. And he says, the people who've been here for thousands of years, you have to use telescopes to actually see the light from their house because they're so deeply disconnected. And, and here, as we kind of wrap up, I, I, I want us to examine our lives because when we look at our relational landscape, our church history, our past friendships, uh, there's a lot of our lives that look a lot like the empty neighborhoods and streets of Greytown. We're like, man, every time things got hard, I ran away. Or every time we went through this conflict, they were disconnected. And so I, I want to ask the question, how do we resist moving farther and farther away from each other when things get hard? How do we keep our differences and disagreements from growing into a life marked by further and further disconnection? How do we be a church that works through a community, a family that actually works through the difficult things in a healthy way? And so this is why we're going to be turning to Colossians, because it is a letter written by Paul to the church at Colossae, and he's addressing how do we hold fast in the midst of all this, this melting pot of people that have different backgrounds and, and understandings and, and personalities, and we have conflict because of our sin nature and our fallenness. How do we actually work through these things in a healthy way? So Colossians 3, starting in verse 11, he says, here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. 
See, Paul starts out to remind us that we are no longer a divided people. He's looking at the landscape and he's acknowledging that there are massive differences that normally divide people and segregate them into different segments of society. Religion, the culture they grew up in, their class, their status. I mean, we could add, we could add to the list today, could we not? Political affiliation, where, where, we, where we're born, where we're from, all these things. And each of these, what happens is they separate us because they come with a way of thinking, a way of behaving, of how we gather, how we spend our time and our money, how we live, that result in separation if those, those things become our full identity. But Paul says, no longer, because when what identifies our actions now is that we are in Christ. He says, that is not who we are anymore. We are now God's chosen ones, holy and beloved by God. And if we are chosen, if that is our identity, if we are holy, if we are beloved, that's not something we're trying to earn. That is something that has been earned on our behalf by Christ, and that becomes who we are. And if that is how we are, we should live differently. We, we should behave our interactions with one another. They should bring a unity as we put on the nature of Christ. And so we need to be a people in new clothes, is what he's arguing here. That, that we would actually take... And the word here for put on is the word in duo. It means to put on or to clothe yourself. And so there's these characteristics we have to habitually choose to put on. Now, it's interesting. Uh, when it comes, think about packing for a vacation, right? There's two different types of people, okay? Um, they're called men and women, okay? <laughs> and the way they pack is vastly different, all right? Guys are like, Whatever fits in the suitcase, throw it in, day of, I don't care. When I get there, I'll embrace the adventure of the day. Like, what, what, what do I have to wear? Am I right? Like, no, this is good. Like, literally, the car is warmed up. The Uber is there to take you to the airport, and you're, like, still packing your bag. Like, it'll be fine as long as I remember socks and underwear. I think I got this covered, right? Uh, but ladies, you are, like, running a, a, a country in your strat strategic planning for, for packing a, for a vacation. You have outfits for every day. Right? And this is why, by the way, guys, this is why ladies pack so much, because it's not just like, hey, here's my pants, and here's my short, and here's my shirt, and here's my dress, right? It's like, no, this is morning outfit. Here's beach outfit. And then we're, if we're going to go out to dinner, right? And then if something happens if you're going on vacation with a group of people, okay, all the ladies have a secret text thread where they're taking pictures of their outfit and sending them to each other so everybody knows they're on the same level and everybody's prepared and equipped. And it's funny because guys, you know, guys never borrow clothes from each other. You're never like, bro, your calves look killer in those jeans. You think I could rock those, you know? Like, no, 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 that's not a thing. Maybe like a sports jersey here and there. But ladies, you, you love love swapping clothes, right? I want to borrow those boots. I want to borrow that hat, that dress, and all this stuff. You love raiding each other's wardrobes. And part of it is because we, you do not want to show up to a place unprepared. That's the worst thing in the world. Like, you show up for a climate and a situation, and, and you're unprepared because your wardrobe is lacking, okay? What Paul is saying here is that we do not need to be lacking or unprepared for this life because we get to raid the closet of Christ and put on his nature and character. This is the metaphor that Paul is drawing on here. Whose wardrobe is this? This, this looking at kindness, humility, meekness, compassion, patience. It's the nature of Christ that those of us who are in him, we get to put this on. And so we need to be a people in new clothes, 
of people who actually look like Christ. And so, so what is this? Let's, let's lay it out here. First, compassionate hearts. A compassionate heart understands the brokenness and the battle of those around you. You actually get to know the story. You have compassion for what they're facing, the battle they're facing on a daily, on a daily basis, the story that they've walked through. We don't just you know, immediately judge and condemn by, by the outside behavior. Like, no, no, there, there's layers going on underneath. In 2020, when, when, when um, you know, political relational tension was at its highest, I remember scrolling through, through Twitter, and I took a screenshot because at the exact same moment, there was these two posts that were posted. I want to read them to you. Okay, first, Derek Rish, Rishmoy says this, do not underestimate how much online and in real life anger, toxicity, etc., is an outworking or a cover of a deeper sadness, loneliness, and despair. Often Jesus' command to bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, is not just right, but it's really the necessary response. And then the same exact minute, Jackie Hill Perry, she posted this. She says, it is easier to say I'm mad than it is to say I'm hurt. At times, anger is a veil. Behind it is pain, Hurt, insecurity, and other things our fragility won't allow us to name. So we rage to project strength when all we wanted the entire time was a hug. This is what compassionate hearts look like. The word for hearts is the Greek word splanknon, okay? It, it literally means guts. It means intestines. It, it's saying we should have compassionate guts. It's, it's actually the Greek word. It's the root for where we get the word spleen. And the spleen is this part of your body that stores blood and it filters, it helps filter blood and it actually helps produce the antibodies to fight infection. And what Paul is saying here is we should have, so, we should have compassionate guts that filters out the bitterness, that filters out the condemnation, that filters out the rage and the anger and the bite to us and to where we actually have compassion on people because we, we see them and we're not condoning or celebrating or even ignoring their behavior, but we're recognizing that outward behavior is a result of an inner wound. And a story of brokenness and hurt. That's how we be, that's how we can be a people actually marked by compassion. Second is this word kindness. Kindness is when you have a gentleness and a softness in your demeanor. Um, it's actually used, it's a term used of wine. Like if you, if you go to wine tasting, some of you guys, you have like this in-depth, intellectual, finely retuned, you know, tuned palate. And so you try wine and you're like, mm, yes, this was, this was aged in oak from Southern Italy. I can taste it. Mozart and the key of D was played while this, while this wine aged, right? And there's others, you're like, this tastes like bad grape juice, right? Okay. But here, here's what I know, wherever you're at on that spectrum, if you were to place a $5 bottle of wine that was just, that, that, that was literally made last year and a $100 bottle of wine that was 20 years age, you would be able to tell the difference. You know why? Because in the aging of wine, that's when the bitterness is removed. The Greek word for that is kindness. This, this wine is kind and the bitterness is removed. It's also a word used of Jesus in the New Testament. It says that Jesus is the full display of God's kindness to humanity, take on flesh and blood. And this is how we should walk and how we should carry ourselves. We should have a gentle and a kind demeanor 
It's not weakness. It's actually a fruit of the Spirit. Being kind is, is the, the Holy Spirit being put on display in our lives. As my buddy Paul Pastor put it, he says, the shape of your kindness shows the world the shape of your soul. This is putting on Christ. Third is humility. Humility is the ability to remind yourself that you're not on the throne. That this world and this, this, this life and these relationships are not all about you. Humility is such a powerful thing in relationships because uh, humility is what paves the pathway to restoration. To be able to admit, man, like, like this is not all about me and there's areas where, where I do fall short and I'm, and I'm wrong. It, Tim Keller, he, he puts it like this and he's kind of he's quoting C.S. Lewis here. So here's um, C.S. Lewis quoted by Tim Keller, quoted by Jason Clark. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. When you meet someone you want, who's actually humble, you won't think, wow, they're so humble. You won't be thinking about them at all. You'll be thinking about how they made you feel. Like, man, they, they made me feel seen and important. That's what biblical humility is. It's an action where we take, where we place others before ourselves. In the image of Christ, who who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid it aside and he he put us first in such a beautiful and a powerful way. A couple months ago, I was meeting with a mentor of mine, a retired pastor, and I was was just bringing up, man, the situation where I'm just seeing, you know, I'm I'm seeing this selfishness and I'm seeing, you know, these these marks of even little bits of division and I'm like, I'm asking him, what what do I, how do I respond in those kind of things? and he just said similarly to me, he's like, he's like, hey, pull out your Bible, and I want you to pull out James 3.16. He goes, whenever I see any kind of division, any kind of backbiting, um, I, I read this passage because it's, it, it points to it over and over. He says, for wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He's like, I guarantee you trace that route, and what you're gonna find is you're gonna find jealousy, and you're gonna find selfish ambition. People who care more about, hey, this is what I want. This is how I want things to be. But humility has this grace to it that places others before themselves. Um, there's kind of this new trend happening. I don't know if you noticed it um, more and more on Halloween, uh, where instead of people uh, having their lights on and you can you know, knock on their door, they just place the bowl outside, you know what I'm talking about? And they like put some sign on it, right? You know, like trusting that teenagers aren't going to be like, yes, and take it all, right? And what's funny is now that we have like these doorbell cameras, everything's captured. And so these, uh, these adults who, you know, some, sometimes they have a circumstance where they can't. Other times they're just lazy and they don't want to see people, okay? But they'll record these videos and then shame these teenagers for taking all the candy, right? Like, come on, you just got bad theology. There, there's total depravity in the souls of those teenagers. Of course they're going to take all that candy. That's on you, bro. Don't go post that later. But every once in a while they capture these special moments, okay? And so uh, go ahead and play this one. And so this, this is one where they put a sign out, baby is sleeping, please take three pieces of candy each. And so you notice these first three teenagers, there's a group of five, they take it all, right? Number four doesn't even get any, watch number five. Be that kid. That is humility. That is kindness. That rather than saying like, oh, like you guys took it all. Like, look at me. Woe is me. He walks up and he's like, man, what's this gonna be like for the next kid that walks up? 
I, I'm willing to, to, to sacrifice so, so that I can fill the bowl. Would we be a people who understand that our calling is to fill the bowl, to fill the places where people are empty? That is how we put on Christ. That's what it looks like to wear Christ. I was showing my daughter that video yesterday, and she watched it like 15 times, and she, she got emotional. She's like, he's so nice. She goes, he must be a Christian. And I'm like, that's right. That, because it's, it's only Jesus where we get that level. Fourth is meekness. Meekness means displaying the, light, the right blend of strength and restraint. Sometimes it takes enough strength to be gentle. We look at gentleness and we say, oh, you're so soft. You're so weak. Would you actually, would you actually have the strength? Would you have the guts to, to be harsh in these moments? And you're like, no, no, no. No, you, you know what? It actually takes great strength in order to be gentle with people. Uh, this week, we got our carpets cleaned downstairs, and, and, and anybody who's ever had their carpets cleaned, you know uh, you have to do this like balancing act where you have to go in your kids' rooms and somehow get everything in their room on the bed, right? <laughs> right? And so it's this like, giant tower, and so my son, he came home from school, and he saw all his stuff moved, and he had this like emotional, like, like breakdown moment. And, uh, you know, I, was, I got down there and I'm trying to calm him down. I'm trying to figure out why he's so upset because I'm like, Dex, we'll put it all back. We'll put it all back. He goes, no, you don't understand. He's like, I spent hours building that tank and every time I move it, everything falls apart and shifts around. And I look at him and I say, buddy, you, you know why that is? I was like, because you don't have enough strength to be gentle. Like, but dad's here. And I can lift that tank and I can move it with gentleness. That's what meekness is. And so when we actually live with a kindness and a gentleness, that is not our weakness and our softness being put on display. That is a display of Christ's strength in us and the Holy Spirit's power moving in us. This is how we should walk. This is why Paul when he's writing to this young pastor who's taking over the church in Ephesus and he's dealing with all kinds of division and all kinds of disunity and people coming in trying to rip the church apart. He gives them advice. And in my flesh, you know what I think of the advice would be? Kick those people out of your church. Have nothing to do with them. Keep them away. Keep them, like, like debate them, crush them, right? This is not what Paul, look what Paul says in, in, in teaching how to deal with it. Second Timothy 2 says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. That word gentleness is the exact same Greek word we have here in Colossians 3 that's translated meekness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Even when we're dealing with the mess in the harshness and the brashness of others, how are we to respond? It's with a gentle meekness. Meekness, it's not weak, it's not passive. It, meekness is actually strong enough to refrain from destroying your opponents in order to possibly restore them. That's what we are to walk into. And lastly, this last article of clothing that we get to raid Christ's wardrobe with is patience. One theologian described patience, says patience is what reveals our faith 
in God's timing, God's omnipotence, and God's love. It can be defined as being slow to avenge injury that is done against you. It can be defined as enduring evil when it's done against you. It's a willingness to not short-circuit the sanctification process in someone else's life. I heard somebody describe it like this. They said, if you really want to know someone's true character, see how they respond to slow internet. I was like, (laughs) chill, man, relax. Romans 2, it tells us that God is patient with us, knowing that his kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. That's the whole point of repentance, or the whole point of patience, is that we would not short-circuit the process that God is trying to work out. So, yes, patience is, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of the Lord's work in your life. But you know what else it is? It's, it's outward evidence of the soundness of your theology. Do you really know who God is, his, narr- his character, and his nature, and do you trust in that? See, do we believe that God is actually sovereign? If we believe in his sovereignty, then we can patiently wait upon the Lord. Do we believe that he is true to his promise to bring about justice? Then we can actually patiently endure the atrocities and the pain that we are facing because of God's justice? Do we believe that he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's omnipotent, all-powerful? Then we can patiently endure the process trusting in his nature. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 37, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes, but we need to be a people who patiently wait upon the Lord. It's declaring these things. See, this is the nature of Christ. This is what we need to wear. See, clothing yourself, it's an act of maturity, is it not? Putting on this nature, like, no, this is an action that we are to take. This is not to earn God's love. No, it's already been earned. Remember, we're already chosen. That's our identity. We're already beloved, we're already made holy in Christ. So now we need to, it, to grow in maturity is to allow that inward identity to work itself outward in the way we interact with people. And the marks of that is our kindness and our gentleness and our meekness and our patience and our compassionate hearts. And it's an act of maturity. Anybody who's ever had kids knows how precious it is that moment your kid gets themselves dressed for the first time, Right? Because like dressing those kids is miserable. You ever try to put socks on a toddler? Like, Lord, sanctify me right now. Like, it's this miserable thing. And the first time your kid comes out, what, like, what happens, right? What's their clothing look like, right? Their jeans are on backwards, their shirt's inside out somehow. They always have some kind of crown or headband every time, and they only have one sock because they couldn't do it either, right? But you're not like, oh, you did it all wrong. You're like, hallelujah, glorious moment, go get in the car, right? Because you're like, I don't have to dress them anymore. And they get older, and it's this glorious moment. I set my, my daughter, Nova, seven years old. She has better fashion sense than I ever will, right? She comes out of her room, and I'm like, man, you look beautiful and put together. My son still can't get his shirt on the right way, right? He just can't. Like, we were FaceTiming with him this week while we were gone. He had a hoodie on, inside out, it, we were literally like, we're like, Dax, is your hoodie inside out? And he just disappeared from the screen and came back. Just a t-shirt, like, right? Okay, but we're not sitting there like condemning this. We're like, no, we're so excited. that It's an act of maturity. When you put on the character and nature of Christ, you know what your heavenly father is doing? He's not saying, oh, but you're not as kind as Jesus, right? That, got that one backwards or inside out. No, he's, he's celebrating. 
that you're walking in obedience, that you're letting the inward transformation result in external change. And so we as a church, we need to celebrate these things. When we see someone grow in patience, we need to come around and be like, man, I, I, I saw that moment. When we see someone act meekly, when they could destroy someone, but instead they respond with gentleness and patience and kindness, when we see compassion come out, man, we need to celebrate. See, we clothe ourselves in Christ because the church should be a counterculture community. It needs to look different than the community around us. And what is the community and world around us marked by? It's a power grab in our culture. Man, everybody is just self-promotion. Everybody's just bragging and, and, and raving about them, themselves. It's, strength is marked by force and aggression. Cancel, cancel culture is, is well and at live. Indifference to the problems of the world that have nothing to do with us. That is what the world is marked by. But we must renounce these things. We must say, not so in the church. We must renounce indifference in order to be moved with compassion. We must renounce harshness in order to be moved with gentleness. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We should renounce the tyranny of power grabs in order to walk with meekness. We must renounce unrealistic expectations on those around us in order to be a people marked by patience. See, the church is unified and God is glorified when we live with such Christ-like conduct. And, and Paul is saying that the wardrobe is yours. Rate it. Put on the nature and the character of Christ. Wear it. And it continues in verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, we need to be a forgiven people, forgiving people. That's the mark of the church. That's who we are. See, all these characteristics, this new wardrobe, these new clothes, we put them on so that when people do, when people do, not if, but when people do hurt us, when they wound us, when they sin against us, we can have the gentleness, the humility, and the patience, and the theological perspective to actually forgive them, to bear with one another in our brokenness. How? What's our motivation for this? Well, he says it right here in the text, because Christ has forgiven you. This is why we have to be a gospel people. This is why our identity has to be built in the gospel and nothing, nothing else. Because the gospel, when we are gospel people, we recognize both our flaws and our acceptance. See, if we were a people that was just built on religion, religion says, I'm good enough in God's eyes, therefore I'm saved. You ask most people, hey, will you be in heaven for eternity? They, they all say the same thing. They say, yeah, absolutely. And the, when you ask why, they say, because I'm a good person. The only way we can define ourselves as good people is in light of the atrocities of other people. And so if, if we are a religious, if we are geared around religion, hey, we're, we're better than everybody else, then by default, we have to look at everyone else and condemn them and say, we want nothing to do with them. If we are a people built on anti-religion, anti-theism, atheism, we actually look down on others that are so archaic in their thinking that they have to be vilified as the problem. I can't believe you would actually believe in a God. I can't believe you would submit to the teachings of this book that was written to over 2,000 years ago. And, and, and this religious morality is the issue. 
But we do this with anything. If we're a people built on political ideology, everyone else is the problem. Are we seeing this? Everyone, the problem with our world is people who do not subscribe to my political ideology and if people would just vote differently, everything would be solved. We, we, if we're a people built on social status, others, they, they actually, they can just be stepped over in order for myself to progress up the social status or financial status ladder. If we're a people built on our sexual identity, if that's who we are at our core is our identity, our sexual identity, then others who are not like me, they hate me, and therefore I hate them. And it creates this more and more separation. Even churches even do this with denominations. If that's our identity, we are this denomination, we are that denomination, that's who we are. Others who do not align with us, they're wrong, and therefore they must be torn down. See, a community of people who find their identity, unity, and oneness in anything other than the gospel, by their very nature, they will look for reasons to divide and blame and disconnect. But Paul says, but that's not who you are. You are a, you are a Jesus people. You are a gospel people. You are chosen. You are made holy. You are blessed and dearly loved. See, a gospel people are a forgiven people who forgive people. Tim Keller describes the, the two waves of the gospel that we experience. Here's the first one, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. And it's a humbling acknowledgement. But the second wave at the very same time is like it, that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. This is what we need. This is why we have to keep coming back to the cross, you guys. Because when we look at people and we say, look at how they've wounded us and how they've sinned against us. If we don't, in the same time, understand how we have wounded the Lord and remember his forgiveness and grace, we will continue to vilify and remove and we will never never have the strength and the power to move in us to actually bring, be a community of forgiveness. This week, uh, my wife and I, we went to Colorado and uh, we gathered together with 25 other lead pastors and their wives from kind of all around the nation. It was an incredible experience. It was so good to just see. And uh, it was called Hold Fast because what this was, was it was just, it was free for all of us because they had some donors pay for it all because they wanted to pour into pastors because pastors are, they're, they're, they're resigning and quitting at an alarming rate across the nation. Uh, probably at a rate higher than we've ever seen. And they spent the time just looking at, okay, why is that? And one of the reasons is because we just, over the last couple of years, there's been a unique amount of wounds that people have experienced, um, especially these, these leaders have faced. And so the very first talk was about, hey, how do we actually deal with some of these wounds? We, we, we filled out all these sticky notes and put them on a wall and just saw this spread of all the wounds that we just, and, and how do we deal with them? How do we walk in grace and how do we walk in forgiveness? And at the end of the talk, uh, the guy leading it, he, he had us pray and hold our hands out. And he says, I, I need you to do something for me. As you sit there holding your hands out, I want you to say the person's name who's wounded you the deepest. And I want you to just hold it in your hands. And those of you guys who've been here uh, since the beginning, uh, you may know this, that when we planted Rise, uh, we planted alongside uh, my best friend at the time. And about four years in, I experienced a deep betrayal from him. 
one that like, if I'm honest, still leaves a pretty gnarly scar on my life. A guy who I thought was my closest friend and partner in ministry, who turned against me, tried to turn others, and then after they left, put all the blame on me. And so I'm sitting there, like enjoying my time in Colorado, and then immediately not enjoying my time in Colorado. (laughs) And so I'm praying, and I'm saying this guy's name. And the guy leading the prayer says, now I want you to pray God's blessing over their life. And so I've walked the road of forgiveness. This is not some open wound that's still there, but it is a scar. But I can honestly say up to this point, I don't think I've ever prayed for God's blessing on his life. I pray repentance. I pray justice. (laughs) And I start to pray, Lord, would would you bless him and his family? Lord, would you bring people into their life to care for them and shepherd them? and to walk them through this road. And we say amen, and we kind of go throughout our day. And we spend the afternoon just kind of walking through the hills and processing and talking. And and we get to dinner, and we're sitting down, and it's this really nice dinner, and we're sitting there with two other couples. And we're sharing each other's stories a little bit. And we're getting to know each other and what city we're from. And uh, one of the couples uh, shares what city they're pastoring in. And lo and behold... (laughs) It's the same city that this friend that betrayed me is now living in and working in. And so I just ask a simple question. Uh, I ask him, hey, do you know this coffee shop? Because it's a coffee shop that he started. And the guy looks at me with wide eyes. He goes, dude, it's across the street from our church. He goes, I'm there every day. I know the owners. I talk with them all the time. Our whole staff meets there. And I just begin to just open up about my story a little bit of what's happened and what I've walked through. And I sit there and I just am overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness of God. Grace that I don't, I don't, I can't muster within myself. But that God is so good that he continues to pursue people. And this, this act, this moment, what it did, it, it melted my heart in a way that I just desperately needed. See, Miroslav Volv, he puts it like this. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. And what we need in order to be a people marked by forgiveness is we need to recognize the gospel's move in our hearts and our lives first, and then we can be a people who actually extend it to others that actually walk with others. See, the ground is level at the cross. And what that means is we all come to it in need. There there is some junk in this room. I know it. There's some sin. There's some brokenness. And there's some of you who are sitting here thinking, man, I am such a worse sinner than other people. You know what you need to hear? The ground is level at the cross. We all need Jesus. There are some of you who are self-righteous. You're like, man, my life is pretty good. I'm not like that guy or that gal. You met her, okay? You know, you know what you need to hear? The ground is level at the cross. We, we need the gospel, you guys. And if we think we can be saved by anything but the gospel, we will live lives of condemnation and judgment. And as soon as someone wrongs us, we're done with them and we write them off. But if we can be a gospel people, marked by redemption, marked by forgiveness, marked by grace, then we can be a gospel community that says, no, 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 what we need, 
We need the cross of Jesus, and you need it just as much as I need it, and I need it just as much as you need it. That is what it means to be the church. That is what it means to actually be, when we remember the cross, we are actually able to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And so lastly in this, we have to be a people in whom Christ's peace rules. He says, and above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. See, we have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Peace and rule, it's war language. It's, it's you need to go, no, you need to go to war over the division you experience. Peace has to be the judge. The way of Jesus has to be the law of the land. This is kingdom language. See, the peace of Christ, it presides. It governs. It judges over our church and our interactions. Theologian Epi Meyer says, the Greek word means to arbitrate. That Christ's peace would arbitrate, would navigate this disagreement, this argument. Whenever there is a doubtful issue to be decided, and by one course your peace may be disturbed, whilst by another it may be maintained, choose the thing that makes for peace, whether for yourself or others. Let God's peace act as umpire. See, church, The unity, tranquility, and peace of Christ must rule in our church. This is what it means to be a unified church. That we would look at Jesus and we would look at his peace and say, no, that's what rules in our hearts. Not our our silly, pithy disagreements over things. Man, I just see it. I see churches ripped apart constantly by these secondary, tertiary issues and preferences. And and you speak to, hey, no, we need to be united. Scripture calls it to be united. You know what people say? They'll say, yeah, but at what cost? We need to come, come together. We need to be one in Christ. Yeah, but at what cost? You know, I'll tell you the cost. The, the hill of Calvary. The, cross of, the cost of the unity of the church is the cross of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. This unity that we have, this oneness that we have, it's not something we made. It's something Jesus bought with his blood. And our role in the church is to fight to protect it. And this is what we walk in. And so I'm standing with Jackie Hill Perry on this, when she's a brilliant author and theologian, who says, I have no desire to die on hills that look nothing like Calvary. This is what we come around on. No, this is our oneness, is the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts. The peace of Christ must rule in our relationships. The peace of Christ must rule in our church, in our community. This is what it looks like to walk. And so this is how we can be a people that actually experience God's blessing poured out. You realize that? One of the biggest things that keeps you from experiencing God's blessing in your life, in your marriage, in your friendships, and in your church is disunity. And it's funny how, like, in church culture, like, blessing has almost become, like, this negative word, like, ooh, sounds, sounds a little healthy, wealthy, right? No, it's called gospel Bible truth, okay? God wants to bless us. He wants to pour out his blessing. Look at Psalm 133. It says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the beard, on the head, running down on the beard, 
on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has what has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This, it's this beautiful picture. You know what anointing is? It, it's marking someone out for God. Samuel anoints David. And he pours, when David is going to become king, when he's a little kid, he pours oil on his head to anoint him as the future king, saying, Lord, would your spirit be with this man? Would your blessing be poured out? It's immediately the next thing after David's anointing, that's when he then, then goes and slays Goliath. In the New Testament, we see this call. It says, the, have the, is somebody sick? Have the elders of the church come and anoint them with oil, marking them out for God's hope and God's healing. And what the, the psalmist is saying here, that when we dwell in unity, we are, it's like oil being poured out on us, marking us for the goodness and the blessing of God. You ever kids fight, right? They're battling, it drives you crazy, and they're like asking for things while they're fighting. They're like, that's the last thing I wanna do. But, but do you know how easy your kids can ma- manipulate you when they're getting along, right? They're loving each other, and they're like, can we go to Disneyland? You're like, let's just go now. Like, get in the car. Like, this is a holy, sacred moment. Experience the blessing. I pour it out upon thee. You want Olive Garden? I don't care. Eat all the breadsticks you want. Like, this is fatherly language here in Psalm 133. The Lord wants to bless our church, but he will not pour out his blessing on our church if we are constantly dividing over these meaningful things that don't look like Calvary. And we need to experience that. And so we need to be a people who do what Paul says here and wrap it all, all of it in love. All the virtues listed in 12 and 13 on their highest level are manifestations of love. Kindness is a manifestation of love. Compassion is a manifestation of love. Meekness is a manifestation of love. And love, it, love is, needs to be what wraps the whole outfit together. It is not a complete outfit without love. And so I these friends share this post this week. It's by a guy named Scott the Painter. And it's just this simple image. And as I stared at it, it just wrecked me. You know why it wrecked me? Because I know what it feels like to have arrows shot in your back. And I know how I want to respond in those moments. I want to go and I want to, I want to shoot back. I want to break the bow. I want that person nowhere near me. And yet, if I truly understand the theology of the cross, I understand that it was my sin that held him there. And he offers grace and redemption and forgiveness. This is what the kind of community we need to be. One marked by kindness, one marked by gentleness, one that forgives others as Christ has forgiven us. And so can you just do me a favor? Can you just close your eyes right where you're at? And if you're willing and you feel comfortable, will you just hold out your hands? And and I need you to hear this. God wants to pour out blessing on your life. He wants you to experience freedom and goodness. He wants you to experience grace and newness. But as long as you hold on to malice and bitterness and unforgiveness, I think you are holding yourself back from experiencing that blessing. 
And so as you hold out your hands, I want you to hold that person in your hands who has deeply wounded you. Maybe just say their name under your breath. Maybe think about what has happened and what they've done. And in the quietness of your heart, would you show them some compassion in this moment? Would you show them some kindness? Would you pray God's blessing over their life? And as you hold them in your hands, I just, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13 over you. This is a message paraphrase, but this is a powerful truth. And you can listen to it, you can read along on the screen, but, but let this truth just, just be like oil poured over your soul. It says, if I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain jump and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others. It's always, isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. It doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering truth. It puts up with anything. Trusts God always. It always looks for the best. It never looks back but keeps going to the end because love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limits. We know only a portion of the truth, but what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompleteness will be canceled. Lord, as we hold these names and these wounds in our hands, will we surrender them to you? Lord, we ask that you would pour out your blessing on them and your healing on us. Would we be a healed community of people walking around, leaving a wake of healing in our path, marked by your wardrobe, your compassion, your kindness, your meekness, your gentleness, your patience. Lord, would we be a church that is experiencing your poured out blessing because we choose unity and oneness, and kindness, and compassion. Would you move this in our hearts and our lives? Would you bring about healing in us? We pray all this in your name. Amen.